And my first case was a case involving a person that was charged by the name of Scott Allen Wright. And it, without a doubt, it is what sparked my passion for, for DNA and its ability to also exonerate those people that were not responsible. And it was just getting introduced in the United States. And I was, I was told that DNA is fingerprints on steroids. He threatened to kill her, he punched her, he knocked her to the ground, and he began to sexually assault her. I have, you know, a daughter that age, and I have a wife that age, and I haven't locked my doors in seven years. <laughs> now I do. When you, you're, you're in your own home and you feel you're safe, the fact that somebody could be around a corner behind a door is, is, is pretty haunting. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to the first episode of Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and I am excited to host this new podcast that will take listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in history, uh, both here in California and perhaps elsewhere. But it doesn't just take you behind the scenes. It will also examine the innovative tools and the techniques that were used to not just solve crime, but also came out of crime. As the host of this podcast, I wanna start off by sharing a little bit about my background and my passion for DNA and my career uh, for 31 years, and particularly about how I got involved in DNA, how I got involved in forensic cases, and really why I'm so passionate. My career started about 31 years ago, but my first forensic DNA case started about 20, seven, 28 years ago in 1993, when I was a prosecutor in the Bay Area. From there in 1993, I then moved on to Sacramento County, did a number of cases starting in the mid nineties. And ultimately we started the cold case unit in Sacramento County around 2000, 2001, where we really uh, identified and ultimately uh, many cases were solved and many were prosecuted involving cold case homicides. And, at, and as many people know, culmination of that came in 2018 uh, with one of the most innovative tools of, of forensic DNA used to solve the notorious East Dairy Rapist and Golden State Killer case and many, many other cases uh, that we'll talk about later through hopefully this series of these podcasts. So my first DNA case was, as I mentioned, in 1993. And just to give you a little bit of background, I was 29 years old. I was a prosecutor working in the Bay Area in a county called Solano County. I was assigned to the sexual assault unit. So I was, I would say, a fairly young prosecutor. And my first case involving DNA was a case involving a person that was charged by the name of Scott Allen Wright. And it, without a doubt, it is what sparked my passion for, for DNA and its ability to not only solve crime, but to also exonerate those people that were not responsible. I've asked a retired law enforcement officer and CSI, particularly investigator by the name of Curtis Cardwell, to be my first guest here on our podcast to talk about this case and his work in particular and, and really the evolution that we saw through this case. Let me just kind of do a little bit of background on the case. In, in late 1993, in December, there was a serial rapist running around Solano County, really in particular in a small city that Curtis worked in called Sassoon City. And in December 1993, a young 
teenage girl by the name of Nicole, and I'm not going to use her last name nor the last name of the other victim, um, really out of respect for them, but a young girl by the name of Nicole who had um, taken a bus and had gotten off the bus in this, in this small city, and she was walking home. It was the, and, and Curtis can correct me really about the facts, but my memory was it was late in the day, probably around seven o'clock in the evening. She was walking home from the bus stop. And as she was walking home, she looked behind her and she saw a man in the bushes, which scared her and she began to run. And, and when she ran, ultimately this person grabbed her from behind, put his hand around her throat. What she thought was a knife threatened her uh, that he was going to kill her. And he proceeded to drag her down the street between two parked cars. And he um, horrifically sexually assaulted her. And ultimately he took off running and she ran to her home and she told her, told her father and law enforcement was called. And then about a week later, I mean, obviously we'll get into the facts of the case, but about a week later, uh, a 40 something year old woman living in the same city by the name of Ellen, she had just gotten home from work. She had gone to her refrigerator. She went, if my memory's right, she went to get a bag of M&Ms or something. And as she turned around after she got something out of the refrigerator, she was encountered by a man who proceeded to try to uh, essentially gouge her eyes out, stuck his fingers in her eyes. It startled her, obviously. She screamed violently, and quite honestly, a, a very serious fight ensued. He threatened to kill her. He punched her. He knocked her to the ground, and he began to sexually assault her. All the while, she was screaming, and her roommate from upstairs came downstairs. Um, and I remember distinctly he had, for some reason, a butcher knife. He chased her, uh, the roommate chased her, this uh, assailant out the back door and uh, perhaps just by some kind of in divine intervention, a volunteer firefighter who was off duty saw this whole thing happening in front of him and uh, caught this assailant. And, and really that's kind of the, the general gist of the case. Um, and so that's where I want to kind of introduce um, Curtis Cardwell, maybe Curtis, you can kind of tell us your background, how you got into law enforcement, how long you worked, and, and then we'll start talking about this case, if that's okay with you. Well, my name is Curtis Cardwell. I'm a retired district, chief district attorney investigator from Solano County. Uh, prior to that, I worked as a deputy sheriff and a, a city police officer also. Now, I got into law enforcement in high school as a part of an Explorer cadet program. And uh, so at 14, I was wearing a uniform and riding with my first officer in a patrol car and uh, things were different in 1978. <laughs> a lot different. So that's I when did, you started? Yes. Well, that's when I started as a cadet in 1978. And uh, so I, I immediately fell in love with the whole profession. I fell in love with the professionalism. I fell in love with the guys that you work with, the camaraderie. And uh, it led me to a career in law enforcement. So I was able to fortunately get hired fairly early in life. And uh, I worked as, a, like I said, a city of uh, Susan City police officer where I did this work. Um, I was also a deputy sheriff for the county. And then I retired at the district attorney's office. Okay, Curtis, before we kind of talk about the case, can you just kind of tell the listeners a little bit about Susan City? What kind of city is it? I mean, I remember it very distinctly, but kind of let us know how big is it? What kind of, what kind of community is it? Well, Susan City, I, I would call it a, a bedroom community. It's located just between the city of Fairfield and Travis Air Force Base along the State Highway 12, uh, just off of the highway, Interstate 80. 
Um, so it has a lot of commuters to one, both the Bay Area and Travis Air Force Base. And back in those days, uh, Maryland Naval Shipyard in Vallejo. Um, the population is about 28,000. Last time I remember, it's probably gone up since then. It's, a, it's kind of a landlocked place. It's right close to the Grizzly Island Na National um, Wildlife Area. So uh, I remember in 1980s, maybe 89, the San Francisco Examiner or the Chronicle, whichever it was at the time, had voted Sassoon City the worst place to live in the Bay Area. And their criteria for judging that was a lot of different reasons, including cultural, but the crime rate was high. Um, for a working class community, we, we also had an older section of town with some, with some federally, manned, federally subsidized housing. And we did have a, a crime uh, issue, uh, drugs and all the problems that follow around drugs, uh, you know, shootings, dealing, uh, assaults, thefts. Yeah, those types of crimes. But I mean, then when we move forward to 1993, my, my memory from this particular case is, you know, these particular crimes occurred in really pretty decent parts of Sassoon City. I mean, I remember Lawler, Lawler Ranch was one of the areas, but am I right on that? That it was, these were, you know, fairly yes. safe areas of the city where these crimes occurred. Yeah, these were, these, this, this is where I lived, not, not very far from where this incident happened. And Lawler Ranch, where the second assault occurred, was, you know, the, probably the nicest neighborhood in Susun. And, and I, think, I think it still is a nice neighborhood. Um, it just is only a couple of miles from uh, where we had the true issue. So, as we know, people are mobile today and, and crime bleeds over a couple of miles very easily through the use of right. automobiles and bicycles and everything else. Right. I mean, I, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've learned about, you know, sexual assault and really stranger types of cases like this one is, is they're very rare. Um, they're rare events. Uh, hopefully they'll always be rare events. But, but when you have um, incidents like this, where one, you're, you know, someone's kidnapping a teenager in broad daylight or breaking into the home of a female and sexually assaulting them, those are extraordinarily rare events. And and, and that's, you know, it's hopefully something that we always, we never see is becoming prevalent. But let's just kind of, Curtis, if we can, just, you know, in 1993, December 1993, you're working for Sassoon Police Department, right? Correct. And were you, I mean, were you a CSI officer or kind of tell us your background and how it was that, because I, I remember you very clearly, even though it's been a long time, that you were very, very meticulous. But tell us a little bit about your background and, and kind of the call out that you had starting with Nicole's case? Well, I wasn't on duty when this occurred, neither, neither one of the incidents. Um, I don't remember the shift I was working. That's probably nights because I believe I was sleeping at home when I got the call. And um, Susan City is a small department and it doesn't have the manpower, the resources that many larger agencies do. So um, I wore one of the hats I wore was the as part of the major crime unit. The major crime unit was simply uh, a series of a group of five officers that were each, each had different tasks. Um, so when a major crime occurred, and this, as you said, this was what we call a stranger sexual assault, um, which we take as seriously as anything that happens anywhere, a homicide or anything else. It's at the, it's at the same level. Um, it's a very rare occurrence, thank goodness, or at least it's reported rare. So we roll out all the resources we possibly can when these things happen. So I was called at home, woke up, Drove the station, of course, got my got my gear and went to the scene. 
um, and it was being protected by an officer. And he just pointed to basically between two, this is a, a Nicole's, between two cars in a driveway. And this was uh, late in the year, the leaves were falling, it had been raining, it was kind of a wet, miserable night. And they pointed to between these two cars and said, well, that's where it occurred. And from my memory, there was a, a van and a sedan parked in a driveway uh, under a tree and it was very dark and, and everything was wet. The cars, the ground, the leaves on the ground, uh, every, everything was damp or wet. So were you, before this, this incident occurred, had you had any training or recent training on forensics or anything like that before you walked into this crime scene? Well, I've only been on the major crime unit for maybe a year. And one of the things they did do for me, which was great, was they sent me to Long Beach, California. And I attended a class was being put on by California State University, Long Beach and the FBI. And uh, so it was, a, it was an ID tech course. They gave you instruction on collection of evidence and everything else. But during, during the course of this, they introduced kind of a new concept to me at the time it was called DNA. And this was before, I, I still consider the first major DNA case to be uh, OJ Simpson and where it, where it became very relevant. And I think the technology had come from England or Great Britain. Right. And it was just getting introduced in the United States. And I was, I was told that DNA is fingerprints on steroids. Something that can identify an individual out of a massive number of, of population um, uniquely and even, even more so than fingerprints would. Because at that time, I mean, we, we use the old ID kits in the patrol cars. I mean, if you were lucky, you had an ID kit and it consisted of fingerprint powder and maybe a camera if it worked or not and some film. And this was before digital cameras too. So it took the, the right. professionalism or, or lack of uh, putting a film in the, putting a film into a 35 millimeter camera and then taking pictures using the light you had available to you, which often <laughs> resulted in completely black frames or whatever else because you couldn't immediately look and see that the picture took. Um, so if a camera was loaded improperly or uh, any, it, there was an exposure issue with either too much light, too little light, a flash didn't fire right. I mean, a lot of evidence could be lost that way. And a lot of evidence was lost that way back in those days. So right. as I was instructed, uh, this DNA was dropped from people as they went through life. Um, in fact, the person, and you, I think you know the technology better than me, obviously, but um, everybody that passes through a, a place or a location or wherever else, they're always depositing DNA, whether it's from their hair, from, a, from uh, skin falling off their body or whatever else. And the technology, again, was very, was very green and, and very new. So uh, obviously at that time, body fluids like blood and, uh, and semen and saliva. Um, there was quasi good ability to get DNA out of those things, depending on what it was. And of course, blood was the best. Right. So when, just to, one thing to kind of throw in there is when you talk about this, you know, as we move through life, you leave something behind. You know, I remember from the old days, this, and I'm not a forensic scientist, but was taught this principle called Locard's principle, which is essentially that every contact leaves a trace. And so you have these forensic scientists that can examine whatever it is, it's fingerprints, it's hairs, or it's fibers, or it's paint, those kinds of things. But now, 
like you say, this introduction of this new whole thing called DNA, which is probably like you say, it's identification on steroids. So you walk into this crime scene just having recently had this class, right? So tell That's us exactly. kind of a little bit, yeah. And uh, as, as they said, it's like as your job as this, as the crime scene investigator is to, you know, if this stuff is being deposited, your job is to go find it. And again, at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, there wasn't an industry out there for the collection of it. So a couple of police related companies sold kits for collection of stuff. But a lot of times we use sterile swabs that you would use in a hospital setting uh, together, that kind of thing. Um, and of course, all of our work is collected by a police officer. We're not criminalists and I wasn't a criminalist. Um, all the right. stuff that we collect goes to a, a, you know, a trained person, a, a scientific person, what we call criminalists in the industry. And they're the ones that analyze it and look under the microscopes and do all that, that techno, you know, technologically advanced work. It's not done by a, a patrolman. So what do you remember about the scene? When you walked in, you say it's dark, it's between two parked cars, it looks like it's been raining. What, what do you find? Well, uh, of course, fingerprint powders are uh, a lot of times it's volcanic ash is used in making them. It, 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 it can't be used on wet surfaces. So the only thing you can do at that time is either put a cover over the scene and wait till everything dries and then hope you can find fingerprints. But there was a period of time when I taught a, a evidence collection course for a, the Citizens Police Academy. And if I gave everybody in the class a can of soda <laughs> to drink during the class. And then after we had this instruction, I would ask them all to get their fingerprint kits out. And then with the, with the glass that they've been handling for the last 30 minutes or the can, um, and, and metal surfaces are usually a good place to leave uh, fingerprints. I ask them to use, uh, use their kit they are provided and try to lift one of their fingerprints from the cans. And the vast majority couldn't lift anything. And e even though they knew they were holding that can. So fingerprints are very transitory. It's uh, sometimes right. they're there, sometimes they're not. Just because there's a lack of one doesn't mean somebody wasn't there. It means you failed to collect it. And I think that's a good example of the fact that you could be someplace, you can touch things and you can still not lift a fingerprint. So this scene was 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 horrible from that, that perspective. It, it was it was a, a wet concrete driveway, and it was covered with leaves. Everything was everything was wet. The two cars were wet in between. So I just begin what you normally do is you photograph the scene as you roll up. You take it from every different angle. You try to and it was dark, so you try to use a light you have available or use a, a flash to do that, and uh, take pictures. I usually would do a sketch and then enter the scene and try to start looking for things of physical evidence, you know, a cigarette butt that might've been thrown or discarded, uh, something that right. fell out of somebody's pocket, um, clothing, you know, this is where you look for bullet casings and that kind of thing. And you'd, you'd also look on the building, the structures, the cars for anything where a bullet may have passed through if a bullet, if a gun was involved in the case or some place that the person may have touched. Um, so it was a horrible scene, obviously for getting fingerprints. But uh, as I was looking closely on the ground with my flashlight, I could see a group of, you know, a lot of leaves that were been that had been matted, like somebody had walked on them or some activity had occurred on them. They were kind of shredded, semi shredded, if that makes any sense. Right. And with the light at an oblique angle, at one time I, I saw what looked like some body fluid and maybe maybe a little bit of blood mixed in with something else. So I just collected those leaves, noted where they were collected from, it's between the cars, and packaged them in a, a bag so they could air dry naturally and 
Um, of course, when you collect body fluids, you have to make sure things dry before it goes into packaging because that may be weeks, months, years before that, that evidence is ever analyzed. So right. you let it dry out, keep it, in a, keep it in a brown paper bag typically that's um, able to breathe a little bit and not get mold and mis- uh, mil- uh, mildew type issues. And you send it off to the DA's office and hope that uh, a brilliant young DA can figure it out. my respect for you was launched because you collected these leaves and for the listeners out there it wasn't this the leaves ended up producing dna on them because you had collected them now in addition to that um this young female had obviously had gone to the hospital and had a a a kit of evidence collected from her which became also a critical piece of evidence um, ultimately when we went to trial but for me i think what was so impeccable in this case was the level of detail, Curtis, that you demonstrated. And I mean, who, who gets DNA off a leaf? I mean, that, that was very powerful evidence. But then I wanna now walk to kind of the next scene. And there was other stuff done on this case, uh, on Nicole's case to prepare well, us for be, trial. I mean, for the listeners too, uh, a sexual assault kit uh, in those days was is two parts. It was one, a, side A was for the suspect. Side B was right. for the victim and they both, collect blood, they both collect hairs, they both collect, they, they do comings and everything else. Um, but the kits are, are, are very separate and unique. Right. And so, and that kit, this was the early days. And at that time, there, there are especially trained nurses today called usually part of a SART team or sexual assault response team. And they're nurses who have received special training and how to do this. So when you have a victim, you take them to the, the you know the local hospital and right. take them to the emergency room, and, and they attend to any kind of needs that they may att- need to attend to. But when the evidence collection is done from a victim in a hospital setting, it's uh, often in a special room, and uh, a nurse that's on call is called to this hospital to collect it. And like I said, she has training and experience in, in collecting specific things for the sexual assault kit. So they're the ones that do that. And I a shout out to them because they do amazing work. And yeah. uh, prior to the SART teams, and this was all happening pretty same in the, in the middle of the nineties, but doctors did this collection work. And uh, of course, doctors are famous for not wanting to come to court. So <laughs> this whole SART team was started and uh, Solano, Solano Napa County had a combined team and they were wonderful. Curtis, I want to talk about the next scene, which was about a week later. Now, now keep in mind, you know, the first incident, which happens, I think, around December 9th, obviously a very serious case. The police department's working aggressively, trying to identify who this person is. Um, and then all of a sudden, a second one happens about a week or so later, involving this, this woman named Ellen. And so you, I assume, get called out to that one as well. So the guy tries to, <clears throat> breaks in, assaults her and then ultimately flees out the back backyard. So tell us a little bit about that scene. Well, the, the same results for me. I was home sleeping when they, I got the call to, to come in for this for this case. And uh, as I remember, uh, uh, Miss Ellen was driving home from work and uh, had just arrived at her house and entered the house. I think, I don't know if she came to the front door of the garage and she was in the kitchen uh, when she was alerted to that somebody was in the house with her. Um, very different than the first assault where a young girl was walking along a dark street and she was grabbed by an assailant and dragged uh, around the corner and into a, you know, 
a driveway that was, you know, with the view hidden. Uh, Ellen was in her own home, you know, where you feel most safe and uh, attending to just things you, you do when you walk in the door uh, at the end of a business day. And, uh, you know, you right. look like, you know, look for something to eat real quick, you know, start changing clothes and that kind of thing. I, I believe that some part of that had happened. And he had, I believe that the defendant had seen her drive up and it was just a crime of opportunity. He saw her come up and he snuck into the house right behind her or on the back. I don't recall which, um, but that's where, that's where you feel the most safe in your own house. And, and that's where this assault occurred. Okay. So what, when you get called out, to, I assume you get called out to do the crime scene. What, tell us kind of what you remember about it. Well, it was, it was a nice house. It was a, it was a fairly large house. Um, it, the assault in the kitchen was in the back of the house towards the backyard. Um, there was obviously signs of a struggle in the kitchen area. A couple, you know, like the table knocked around, chairs knocked over. Um, uh, there was a sliding glass door into the backyard that was right close to where the assault occurred. And I believe when the roommate scared off the defendant, he, he left out the back door through that way. Then he uh, went across to a wooden deck and to a fence and, and scaled the fence um, to make his uh, exit. And again, at the time, similar weather in Susun. It was wet. It was cold, wet, and uh, difficult to collect yeah. evidence, I assume. <laughs> yeah, just not a good scene for that. Uh, and it worked in our favor a little bit in that case is the fact that, you know, uh, as you'll get into it, he, he was wearing a specific kind of shoe. And as he ran across the back wet deck, it left visible impressions of his shoot, shoot, footwear. And right. Then I remember. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't no, know. You know he, and he had scaled a fence, too. And again, if it hadn't been wet in that, in that case, um, you probably wouldn't have seen anything from a shoe on a fence. And you wouldn't have seen that a shoe had crossed the deck unless it was really dusty or dirty or anything like that. Um, the fact that it was wet left visible impressions of a foot going across it, or a shoe going across it, just like you would imagine uh, from your own experiences. Well, I remember very distinctly, Curtis, that you didn't just um, take some pretty impressive uh, photographs, but that those shoe impressions became quite a piece of evidence in the actual trial because the, the shoe impressions were uh, from a Nike, so distinctive, it was a Nike Air Jordan, which became, you know, you took one-to-one photographs, and, and ultimately, he, so he gets caught, right, fleeing the scene. Um, the other thing, I, I'm not sure if you remember this or not, but he was wearing a very bright pink sweatshirt. And that became obviously another indication of identification because the, the victim could identify the pink sweatshirt. Um, but the shoe, because the shoe was a Nike Air Jordan, I remember from the trial that the defense called somebody that was like a sales rep for for Nike, basically saying it was the most popular shoe in America, which it may well have been. But when you add this combination of all this other circumstantial evidence, it also became quite an impressive piece of evidence to link him to that crime scene. Well, it doesn't um, exclude him. I think it's important. It doesn't exclude him. It, uh, it says, well, it was a shoe like his and he happened to be wearing it. He was in the neighborhood and he was caught. And as I remember, uh, the fireman uh, heard this dispatch over his scanner his radio that he had in his truck and he happened to be right there he lived close by and so he looks up and he sees a guy in a pink shirt 
and he grabs him and there is a little altercation and he 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 holds him and gets on the radio and tells us he has somebody detained there and then of course the, the police officers arrive uh yeah so but very, two, very two, two impressions have two different uses i mean you can either say it wasn't this shoe that made this impression or it was and then can you look even further and then you start looking into the fine parts of shoe wear like where you stepped on a rock or a piece of glass and you made a cut in a certain place and shoe wear can be well very important evidence and say definitely that shoe made that impression we didn't have that level in this case we had a, what we call a classification type match which means that shoe made that or that shoe or similar shoe same size same manufacturer being worn by somebody in that neighborhood who was running away from a scene so it adds right. to the right so we had classification match on that which means that that shoe pattern was made by a shoe like that in the same size but it couldn't say absolutely it was that exact shoe because there was no fine uh things that i remember being matched to the to the uh the thin shoes so of course we took his shoes as evidence along with the shirt and everything else he's wearing right so then from there i, I remember he got arrested and then there was a what we call an eyewitness uh identification lineup and there was, I re recall, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that, that Nicole did, in fact, identify him. And then ultimately, um, the DNA from Nicole's case was analyzed. It was the very, very early days of DNA. Um, it became a critical piece of evidence. And he was charged, this individual, Scott Wright, was charged with multiple counts of sexual assault, uh, kidnapping, burglary, and the attack on Ellen. And... You know, what was interesting to me about this case, my first DNA case, I had to learn a lot. I wasn't uh, a science major in college or anything like that. Um, but um, like many other folks, we had to learn this whole background. And the case went to trial within, surprisingly, a year of these incidents. And, and uh, Curtis, I'm assuming you remember that you testified in this trial. I recall. Um, yeah. And then... Um, you know, it was a big deal because it was the first case in Solano County history where DNA was used. And, you know, you have to prove that the science is valid. So we had to go through what we call a what we call an admissibility hearing, a hearing to prove to the judge long before the jury comes in that this is actually reliable and it's been validated. So, you know, I'm a young prosecutor trying to do my very best, learning a lot and I uh, had to call a lot of experts. So then once the judge ruled, that it was in fact admissible. Then we started the trial and that's when Curtis was called in, you know, and for me, well, let me, let me just ask this question, Curtis, you know, so he, Scott Wright gets convicted uh, by the jury. And I'll tell you a little bit about my kind of what stood out for me, but what, what would you say from, from a perspective of as a police officer, what stood out the most for you on this case? Well, uh, for the people that are old enough to remember, the O.J. Simpson was the first real true public face of DNA. And uh, I don't recall when this trial was exactly in, in relation to O.J.'s trial. Uh, I think O.J.'s trial was in 94 or 95. But right. you remember the level of scrutiny and how people and the media were discussing this whole DNA thing. And of course, his he had the... Uh, there's a lot of issues with the whole DNA, uh, with the whole OJ case, you know, the, 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 the fact that he was famous and the level of yeah. violence involved. I mean, there's, there's so many different factors involved. And then the, 
the the racial aspect of it and all the, all all that was going on. But this was pretty close to the same time. So I think what you had to do was put on a mini version of O.J. Simpson's trial, which was taken to the next level. I think we can right. agree on in the, in the level of what was going on in that courtroom and what was allowed to go in the courtroom. I mean, he had what five defense attorneys. Um, a team of defense attorneys representing him and, uh, you know, two prosecutors. So I, I, the same things were being discussed in his trial was being discussed in your trial. Uh, these same issues were coming up and you had a jury that had no idea what this was, except maybe what they had learned through the OJ trial and the, the, the prelude to that in the media about what this DNA is and whether it's even reliable a science or not. I, I, re, I recall it being... Well, there's a lot of questions about whether this is really a scientific manner or not. It was it was too new. It, it had, didn't have right. the judicial approval that it has today. If that makes right. any sense, you could probably no. That. It makes sense. I think I think if my memory's right, you know, this crime, this case involving Scott Wright went to trial in October, November of '94, and O.J. Simpson, the, the the homicides occurred around that same time. I think the trial went to, the case went to trial later, but it, you're right. It's, it's very similar issues that were raised. Um, but there was, I mean, I, I don't want to say I put a lot of pressure on myself, but you know, I knew it was a big deal that this is a new and novel thing, but the thing for me, so, you know, what I took away from this case was a couple things. And, and I would like to believe I've carried it through and all of us that do this work carry it through is one no question in my mind that DNA is the greatest tool ever given to law enforcement to find the truth, no matter what that truth is, wherever it leads us. And that has stayed true. The science has only evolved in the last 20, 30 years. But the second piece that I, that I took from this case really came from a moment in this trial. You, you were probably not there, uh, Curtis, uh, in this, this part of the trial, but I remember very distinctly uh, before the case went to trial, I had, sat down and I talked to Nicole and, and asked her what of all things she was going to remember the most during this whole incident. And she had relayed to me that it was the smell. And I didn't really make much of it. She had said something, the person smelled really bad and that he wore a certain cologne. And I, I kind of just, you know, filed it away in my brain. And then in the middle of the trial, I, I had to sh show her some evidence. And she had described the assailant as wearing a pair of khaki pants. You know, pretty much most men in America had a pair of khaki pants. And so she described this. And when, when you, your agency went and did a search warrant on his house, you recovered a number of khaki pants, collected them, put them in bags, all of that stuff. I never made any connection other than the fact it was khaki pants. So this one day during the middle of this trial, Nicole's up on the stand testifying. And I bring out the, uh, a number of these pairs of khaki pants and I put them up there and I asked her, do they look similar? And she basically just said, yeah, they look similar. That's about all she could say. And for whatever reason, I left the cat, the pants on witness stand while she was sitting there. And I walked back to my de desk to ask the next question. And all of a sudden, the dead of silence of the courtroom, she just said, I'm sorry, can somebody get rid of these? I think I'm going to get sick. Mm. And I, that moment, I realized it was the smell of the pants, which became quite frankly, one of the most powerful moments in a courtroom because it was the cologne that the assailant wore that she was never going to forget even a year after this crime. And so for me, it was a moment as a prosecutor that this is the reality of crime. This is the human toll it takes that you don't forget, not just the, 
not just what you went through, but the senses as well. Just kind of wrapping this all up, you know, one, your role in this case was critical because you were able to collect that critical pieces of evidence that ultimately led to this man's conviction. Ultimately, he was sentenced to 79 years in state prison. He's still in prison. I hope he stays there for the crimes he committed. Um, but it was also just the introduction of this incredible tool that we have now revolutionized to the point of now we have genetic genealogy. So uh, that's what I take away from it, Curtis. Um, but I just, I cannot tell you how um, impressed I was with your diligence on this case. Um, anything else I'm missing, you, well, you know, Curtis? Appreciate that. From night from the nineteen I think twenties or thirties, they managed the FBI's uh, fingerprint database. And when you're arrested for certain crimes, uh, back then it wasn't misdemeanors, only felonies. When you got your your fingerprints submitted to the uh, FBI, and then they, using their te techniques of that era, you know, classify them a certain way and using the minutia. <laughs> and they have a database of these things. So we have when you get a fingerprint, if they've been introduced to the system some other time by an arrest, then you could have their uh, fingerprints on file to compare your fingerprints which at the scene against. And the same with DNA. Um, after DNA took off, they, the CODIS was developed and that's, uh, I think it's combined DNA index, index system. Six. Correct. So they maintain that. The FBI maintains that. And um, uh, when, when you collect DNA, you can now go right to, again, that DNA has to be on file with in CODIS for, for it has somebody to compare against. If you haven't been arrested for a felony in California or whatever they are in other states, misdemeanors, and it hasn't been uploaded to the DNA database of the FBI, then you have to go out and start looking for your suspect at large. You don't know who your first, you don't know who your suspect is. You, you, have, you have a database or you, you have a, um, a profile that's been generated by uh, through the evidence, but you have nobody to compare against. So it's still a fishing expedition at that time about who may have deposited this DNA if it's not known to the system already through a database. And, it's, and, and I think what this hopefully this case highlights in your comments, Curtis, is the innovation that has really uh, driven forensic science through the last, you know, almost 30 years. And, you know, for me, you know, in this first episode, I just I hope the listeners find this interesting, informative and hopefully inspiring on how the power really of forensic science and, and really DNA as well has progressed. And you kind of gave us that history and how we've progressed truly exponentially over the last several decades. And, and obviously we're gonna just continue to grow in that field. So Curtis, I just thank you for joining us. Uh, I appreciate your, your, your insight and your experience that you brought to this case. I hope for our listeners that you'll join us on our next episode where we go, uh, above and beyond what was done in this case. And we go behind the scenes of the Grim Sleeper, which was a notorious case that happened out of Los Angeles County. So Curtis, thank you for joining us. My and uh, thank, you, thank you to the, all the listeners. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.